0: Hello, I'm Roger Bolton and welcome to my new podcast. Well, Liz Tress, in her conference speech this week, was seen to have a bit of a dig at podcasters. Well, I might have gone from broadcast to podcast, but I don't live in North London. I'm not anti-growth and I didn't go to Oxbridge, as did the PM. And by the way, Greenwich, where Miss lived until entering Downing Street, is now very, very expensive. So I'm talking to you from my home in rural Hertfordshire. And there's no meddling here other than to cast my eye over the BBC broadcasting landscape. Last week, the BBC's Susie Klein, Head of Commissioning Arts and Classical Music TV, there's a title for you, said branding her shows as arts can be off-putting for audiences, adding that the corporation must find ways to reach a new and younger audience, which might consider the title arts denotes stuffy programming. Well, to discuss that and much more, Much more. I'm delighted to be joined by someone I worked for when I was just 22, and she was the queen of late-night line-up. Twenty-five or so years later, I was her editor on the BBC One religion and ethical series Heart of the Matter. She is, of course, Dame Joan Bakewell, who's synonymous with our arts broadcasting landscape, former BBC television arts correspondent in the 1980s, columnist for most of the major broadsheets at one time or another, presenting numerous radio and television series and more recently presenter of Sky Arts Annual Portrait Artist of the Year and Annual Landscape Artist of the Year. Joan, thank you very much for joining us. You're now in your 90th year and you're still presenting arts programmes. Why do you want to do it?
1: It's a world that I feel comfortable in, the world of talking about art and to artists. I like creative people. They tend to be... More broad-minded, uh, more original, more varied than other segments of society. Politicians are all a bit politician-like. Artists are all different from one another. So I find that very interesting. Um, i also doing it because I was invited. I mean, when you're in your 90th year, there aren't many companies who come to you and say, would you like to sign this contract? So I'm very pleased to do it. And it so happens that the person who runs the company, Story Vault, uh, 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 Stuart Preble, I have known many years as indeed I have known many people in the television world, but he, he and I have sort of grown old together. So my name came to his attention when he was creating the programme.
0: But uh, some people would say, surely wouldn't you like to be in the Mediterranean, sunny, or in the uh, Barbados, or sunning yourself by a pool, or something like that, in your final decade, shall we say, or maybe not final decade? Why do you want to keep on working?
1: I um, I have a suspicion that sit- people sitting by the pool in Barbados do it for a week, a fortnight, possibly a month, and then they become suicidal with depression. I mean, I think it's all very well saying it's marvellous in Los Angeles, the sun always shines, the sky's always blue. But people are really pleased to come from Los Angeles to London and say, oh, it's raining, isn't that interesting? So I like the variety of life, is the answer, Roger. I like uh, meeting a great variety of people. I was at the Cézanne exhibition earlier this this week. I met a lot of old friends, but also I met Cézanne, you know, all these wonderful paintings. So I've always been interested in ideas and expression of ideas. I don't think that declines with age. I mean, I think older people get interested in why they aren't getting enough on their pensions or why the house isn't warm. But I think they're also interested in meeting each other and talking about things.
0: Yes, but I'm interested in the physical demands on you. When you read about these pop stars and others going on tour, they have riders which talks about champagne, which talks about, I don't know, gin, whatever it is, something extraordinary. What's your rider when you go working on Watercolour Challenge?
1: Uh, It's virtually part of my contract. I don't think it's actually written down, but it's understood that I will get my midday snooze because that is what keeps me going. It's actually a physical intervention halfway through the day, which I've done for 40 years, which is to go off and have a sleep, I literally have half-hour sleep. And that is contrived now by my production company, who have purchased a folding bed, a mattress, a duvet, pillows and linen, and it's taken wherever we're filming. So that is how I do
0: it. That's built into the schedule. Joan Snooze, yeah? One to two, Joan Snooze?
1: Absolutely. It's absolutely essential. I recommend it to people because when you wake up after a snooze at about half past two, you feel like it's a new day. So I wake up and I'm roaring away to go at about three o'clock filming and they're all beginning to flag slightly. So it puts me in a strong position.
0: And presumably no alcohol at lunchtime. No, certainly not. (laughs) I want to talk to you about three things in this podcast, arts, general broadcasting. I want to touch also on religion, if I may, and then just reflect on one or two things in your life. But going back to the arts, which has been your passion throughout, do you think Susie Klein is right? I know she's a friend of yours, that labelling some programme as arts can be off-putting for younger audiences.
1: Well, Susie Klein is a BBC executive and they know about things like young audiences I can only imagine it in terms of my grandchildren, who are young people and like all sorts of different programmes. They would seek out the genre that they want rather than the label that's put on it. So it might be on TikTok or it might be a podcast or it might be on some Netflix. They'll find what they want in terms of what they like, which is variety of music. So I don't think young people are tied in the way that we were in our generation, to different strands like BBC One, Two, Three and Four television to, you know, the different channels. I I tend, of course, as you would expect, to watch BBC Two and BBC Four. Alas, it's going to go, apparently, but um, that's what I would seek out. I don't think the young seek out, follow channels, particularly. They follow what they they want to watch, so they go to Spotify or things like that. But you
0: think it matters, we're talking essentially there about methods of distribution or reception. Um, but what about the issue of content itself? I mean, I sometimes think this gets confused. The BBC has obviously got to ensure that its product is available or whatever your programmes are available everywhere in the way the audience wishes to consume it, use those dreadful words. But the content, do you have to this sort of disguise the content by pretending it's not art?
1: You see, I'm not really into all the different processes by which people dispense the product. I don't like to talk about product or the programme or things like that. I just like to put, I, because I'm not a manager, thank goodness, don't have the responsibility of labelling stuff and putting it on platforms. Platforms could help, you know. I don't do that kind of thing. I'm interested in sharing ideas with people who might like to share them with me, and wherever that map goes, I will follow.
0: I first met you when I was 22. You were in your mid or early 30s on late night lineup, and um, I confess to be totally dazzled by you, Joan. But there we are. But I was dazzled not just by you, but by this idea that in the evening, all these extraordinary people would come into a studio, sit down, and talk for as long as you wanted them to talk to you. I mean, it was an accident in the sense there was a Presentation A studio and a Presentation B studio, as, a, as just in case the A went down, and did the weather and had a lot of spare time, and a genius called Rowanhurst thought, oh, we can make programmes in this spare time, we've got, we've got a studio. And then suddenly late night, night line developed, and suddenly it was open-ended, it's the end of the evening of BBC Two, and you were sitting down with... So many people, not just your contemporaries and, and, uh, and people like Harold Pinter and so on, but the most astonishing philosophers and whatever. When you look back at that piece, can you quite believe it happened?
1: It was extraordinary. It was the result of accident in that they found this space and they wanted to use it. It was the launch of BBC Two. It was only a year after BBC Two had been launched. So it was open to ideas. You know, bring us your ideas and we'll see if we can use them. And they were willing to take a gamble on Rowan's spiel that he would bring together lots of people to talk about television, actually. The brief was to discuss the evening's programmes, and either with the star or the writer or to bring in people to criticise it, which got us into a lot of trouble, as you know, because we invited people in to criticise plays that had gone out earlier in the evening, and then the phone would ring and it would be the producer of the play saying, I don't make plays for the BBC television, to have them suddenly rubbish it an hour after the the play has finished.
0: I remember, by the way, Bill Cotton, who was managing director of television, saying, we seem to make two sets of programmes for the BBC. We make programmes... And then we make programs about programmes that criticise our programmes. I don't understand it. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't get it.
1: Well, what is interesting, of course, is that at that time everyone was interested in television programmes. I mean, that's what people did. They watched television. They didn't go to discos. They weren't as fervent about going out and being around. They stayed at home and watched television.
0: But it was also something else as well, wasn't it? There was a certain respect by the people you had in your studio that they would be taken seriously and given time to express what they wished to express. Wasn't it a two-way thing that, as it were, there was not a great deal between them and the audience? You were the only person between them and the audience.
1: Yes, that is true. People turned up because they knew they would get a hearing and they would be able to command the debate as much as they wanted to. And we allowed them to because it wasn't time-limited. It was only cast on the day... So it was rather like a current affairs programme in that. And people would willingly come. We had a whole rota of people. If a programme went down late in the day, we would ring up a medley of people that included George Melly, Jonathan Miller, uh, Terry Jones, Michael Palin. No women, you'll notice. There weren't so many women turned up in those days. And people would come along as though we were saying, come round to our place for a chat. And indeed, it was subsequently a drink. And they would make themselves available to do that.
0: You see the difference now, I think, and, and of course, uh, you know, we've got, one's got to think back and say, well, there was only ITV, BBC One, BBC Two. There was nowhere else for people to go. No channel four, no podcasting, nothing like that. But also it's a question now when people appear on a programme, you think, have I written a book or they're selling a film? In other words, what they're involved in is not an exploration of ideas, but a selling of their particular product and because there are so many programmes they can go on, it's difficult for the interviewer to do anything other than, as it were, go along and talk about what the particular book or film the person is promoting.
1: Well, as you know, it became the shorthand of Michael Parkinson's formula, which was produced, incidentally, by an ex-late-night lineup producer.
0: Richard Druitt, yeah.
1: Yes, that um, if you had a film that was being launched or a, a, theater, a play that was starting, you would go to television to talk about it, and there was no sense that it was a marketing ploy, though, of course, the PR people got onto it very quickly. They would have a play that opened in the West End. They'd get in a taxi and they'd be on our programme within, with an hour of the curtain coming down. So there was an immediacy about it which was very enjoyable. People liked that. It was real, it was live. You, people could phone in. We sometimes faked that and phoned in our own messages. And, um, oh,
0: Joan, I'm shocked, Joan. Oh, dear. <laughs>
1: The and, and well, BBC, friends. you'd be
0: in trouble with the BBC, I warn you.
1: <laughs> um, but various people used to do that, Barry Humphreys being one, because he could do multitude of voices and would pretend to ring up and say, I'm absolutely shocked and disgusted by what's on BBC television at the moment. So we had various collusions with people who wanted to share the fun and it was basically good fun because you wouldn't go there or be on it unless you were up for some sort of engagement.
0: Now, it was a golden age. I don't like talks of golden age because it, 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 we confuse it with our own, if you like, the best times in our own lives. But it clearly was a golden age for talk and coverage of the arts. Is it lost? Have the basics changed so much, so many outlets, as we've discussed PR companies everywhere that that sort of program wouldn't it would not be possible to mount such a program largely about the arts today as you did with late night lineup
1: no you wouldn 't do it today. I have to say that you know our audience wasn 't very large; it was more to do with our identity that mattered the fact that it was there if you wanted it. but we had quite a low audience impact. We came on very late at night, but we did have a following, and we built up a kind of loyalty. And we were the sort of place that people would phone if they'd got something that they wanted to far off about. And that was always very engaging too. But we also mounted serious critiques of the structure of television and how it should be organised, what Channel 4 might be like when it arrived... Um, so we were quite serious-minded as well, but we were not—you know—we're not averse to a lot of fun, and indeed a lot of pop music. I mean, it was the, the cradle of a great many pop
0: groups. Of course, the old grey whistle test came out of the same studio, produced by your unit, so it was extraordinary.
1: Yes, it began within our um, franchise. That um, old grey whistle test.
0: Sorry to interrupt you, but talking like this—I mean, a lot of people will say, "Well, weren't you lucky?" But Joan, that's gone. We can't do anything like that now. And what I detect, and perhaps it's wrong, is a lack of confidence, ultimately, in the appeal of the arts, a feeling that, whereas it was once possible to think it was accessible to nearly everybody, now the whole audience is fragmented.
1: I don't think you need to use the title The Arts, which is forbidding for many people. I think what is important is that there isn't any spontaneous, consistent, freewheeling conversation regularly on television. Everything is structured. If you've worked on Newsnight, you were at Panorama, but you will know that when interviews took place in current affairs programmes, interviewers were briefed, they were rebriefed, they were given a list of questions and sub-questions, and they were completely tightly controlled. Now, none of that happened on LineUp because the idea was a free-flowing conversation. Broadcasting institutions now are too fearful of offending people, I mean, if you were to have a discussion today uh, on the trans issue, for example, you would have the managers coming to watch the programme and, and rec- pre-recording it lest it offend people and they end up going to law or complaining to different organisations. It was Things were freer, possibly more reckless. Management was less tight-fisted about things and so it was possible. But it couldn't have gone on for long because... Management issues became important, building audiences, shaping audiences, having a profile of a particular kind. So its heyday was when there was less control, and we were out of control a lot of the time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I always think when Mrs Thatcher used to say the BBC's out of control, I used to think, yes, out of your control, which is probably the right thing. But, I mean, turning to the 1980s when you were... On Newsnight, I think, were you the arts editor, called the arts editor or the arts correspondent? Yes. It's some grand title, Joan, yeah?
1: But when Newsnight was created, they were formulating, as you know, it there were two strands. It doesn't, this doesn't make sense to anyone outside the BBC, but there were two strands of broadcasting. One was called News and was a law unto itself, and the other strand was Current Affairs, which didn't talk to news and indeed tried to scoop news of any ongoing story. And the news night was an attempt to bring the two together. So there was a lot of internal committee talk about how it should shape up. And I caught wind of this. And I also noticed that there was absolutely no place in the schedules and the formats they were discussing for arts programmes of any kind, art coverage. So I went to see Brian Wenham, who was the controller of BBC Two, had had the power of diktat. And I said, you know, if you have sports coverage... As, as an assumed part of news, which is what, what tradition was, and still is, as many people enjoy the arts as enjoy football, so why are you never considering the arts? He didn't believe me. He went away and checked up the statistics, which are indeed in favor the arts slightly in turn, if you have people going to theaters and cinemas and watching programs on television. So he came back and said, "Yes, I 'll talk to Newsnight, and we 'll put in a series of arts coverage and you go and do it, was how he finished the sentence. You go and set it up.
0: George Coe was the first editor, but the problem with news and current affairs is there's always a late-breaking story that knocks the arts item off the end of the agenda. That must have happened to you quite a lot, didn't it? It happened a lot.
1: I would go out and make a five-minute film, which I could do within 24 hours, and come back and have it ready to run, and then there would be a political crisis or an international war-breaker or something, and they would say... Sorry, Joan, your item's dropped. And, of course, it would be out of date by the next night. So um, there was quite a lot of the work I did which never, never got transmitted.
0: That seems to happen more and more and more. Can I leap forward to the, the present day and what is happening on Radio 4? And, uh, you know, the figures come from OG UK, I think, which say there's been a dramatic cut in the number of hours of drama on BBC Radio, almost halved from 600 hours in 2016-17 to 300 hours in 2022-23. So over six years, drama has halved. Now, they'll make an argument saying they're actually paying people better, so, you know, you've got to take that into account. But that's a, ver- that's a 50% reduction in drama on Radio 4 over five, six years. Do you think that's obviously serious and detrimental?
1: Well, I'm very close to that because um, Michael, Michael Bakewell...
0: Your first husband, yes.
1: Yes, was the head of radio scripts in the 50s and 60s, and they were responsible then for the bringing forward of the generation of writers who would absolutely rule the roost in the subsequent decades... John Mortimer, John Osborne, Harold Pinter, Arnold Wesker, a whole raft of them, and that was their brief. That's what they saw as their brief. They got into a bit of trouble with Samuel Beckett because the audience said, we don't understand what this is about, and the head of drama said to Michael, what's the answer to that? And the answer was, they will in the end. They will eventually, which, of course, they do. He's now heralded as... So that whole generation was enormously creative, enormously pro-new writing and brought forward a whole generation and it lingered on and it seeded an attitude to drama that infected the 60s and 70s and you still see shreds of it today.
0: But isn't it important now today that Radio 4, for example, does a lot of drama or not or do we say oh well it doesn't there's so many other things happening places whatever it's not as central as it was a place for new writers in particular to be able to hone their craft
1: well i don't know about the numbers and who listened and how many listened the bbc was less obsessed in those days with finding the young audience as you will know all um, management people these days say we've got to reach the young we, that's what we need to do that's never interested me I've always been interested in getting good ideas out to anyone who wanted to listen so the other thing there's so many changes that have made it impossible for something like Radio 4 Drama to have the lead role it had in those days there's just so much to do this there's, there's social media all over the place
0: but yeah, but the difference surely is that, I mean, for example, I could write a novel and I try and publish it, but why on earth should everybody read it? Because my novels would be dreadful. The idea now that anybody can make a podcast, well, if for example, anybody can, well, we're doing it, aren't we? But it may not be worth listening to. Presumably, it's important that at the centre there is some sort of filter, some people who can spot really good talent, encourage it, shape it, and give it that sort of guidance that ultimately helps the best writers in their early career. And for a while... The BBC did that and Radio 4 clearly did that and Radio 3 did, of course, in drama. Does it matter if they do that less and less?
1: Well, you and I were part of the school where you learnt very strict rules about how to edit and how to balance and how to treat people and so on. But, you know, modes change and things have become... Social discourse has become much looser... And more fragmented, I mean, there wasn 't a time when I was a studio manager in radio when if a newsreader coughed or wanted to turn aside, there was a switch by the microphone so that he could switch it off, cough, and then switch it on again. They didn't bother, and they don't bother with that now, if you just behave like a human being. Um, but so the rigidity of this idea that you could perfect. Human speech and human exchanges has given way to people being casual, informal, sometimes loose-tongued in the language they use, um, and that's become acceptable. It's also become more democratic because the broadcasters talk more like the public they're talking to.
0: Well, less- I have to ask you about this uh, because I uh, know that Amar was going on about wanting a wider range of accents or whatever, and. Um, an audience on feedback he used to think that he actually should learn to speak properly and not drop words and etc. <laughs> so it was rather controversial. But anyway, can I just raise that question of, of tone of voice and so on? I remember when I first heard you, you were terribly posh. I mean, you're very well-spoken now, but you were quite, really quite posh back in 1968. But Joan Rowlands of Stockport, is what you were, didn't start off like that, did you? You, you remade your voice, didn't you, at Cambridge?
1: Yes I did the bro- voice to which you aspired was called the queen's english well the king's english when i was young but the, but spoken as the queen's english that there was an acceptable form of speech which on the whole most people didn't have because mo- most people grew up with regional voices and regional accents as did i and i came from stockport and i spoke like someone from stockport
0: All right come on Joan tell me what did you say it's all about coffee when you had a coffee did you
1: Um I can't remember, but I, only, I can tell you that Angela Rayner comes from Stockport 2 show. She sounds like I did. <laughs> uh, my mother knew that this was not the way to get on in the world, which was one of her ambitions. It was also born of a sort of a snobbery in which she didn't want me to be classed as um, you know, lower class, where she wanted me to have aspirations. So she sent me for lessons in elocution. And that there were a lot of elocution teachers in those days teaching people how to talk proper and how to lose their accents and I used to go along each week and uh, with other people there were quite a large class and we would be told the the correct way to speak so that was all very well but then I got a scholarship to Cambridge where I was one of the few scholarship girls of that generation in the in the 50s and they other girls at Newnham tended to have come from St Paul's and Rodine and schools like that I mean you know good good private schools and a lot of them spoke extremely well Uh, and I was personally humiliated sometimes mocked sometimes people who had jokes at my expense because of the way I spoke and um, I thought this won't do the elocution hasn't served me well I've got to do something better than that so I started copying these colleagues of mine I tended to copy the ones who seemed to come from the, the grandest backgrounds and had really what you would call posh voices. And it was completely phony, of course, and all my friends rumbled it and teased me for that. So, really, I've never settled anywhere um, until I <laughs> but, became a broadcaster and just started talking like myself.
0: Well, you could laugh at, uh, you know, how, uh, put on accents or whatever, but well, the thing that's clear is that you are clear. You can hear everything. And do you think that actually this argument is irrelevant? It doesn't matter what, it, you know, what accent anybody has, but it does matter how clearly they speak. Diction matters.
1: Well, I think it is important. I've always thought one of the interesting things about people who come from the north is that they use their mouths much more, their lips much more. People from the south tend to talk like this with their mouths hardly open at all.
0: Well, slightly uptight, you think. And rather like that. No, I, no,
1: I've always I've had a secret theory. It's not so secret now because I'm going to tell you what it is. That because the working classes it, across the north worked usually in very loud, noisy factories, mines, mills, whatever. Very large amount of noise. So when they tried to communicate to each other, they had to mouth very clearly so that people. In the fact, I've done this in factories myself. I've worked on conveyor belts, very rattly and noisy. When you want to speak to someone, you have to say, do you
0: want a cup of tea? Yeah, I mean, Les, the comedian Les Dawson, of course, had wonderful routines precisely about that, didn't it? Actually, it's difficult doing radio because you naturally lose your voice and make an exaggerated face, <laughs> as you just... Um... But I'd never thought of that. But um, this argument about what people sounds like, are you offended by it? Diction on radio or accents on radio or, or is the only thing that matters whether they communicate meaning?
1: I don't, yes, I don't mind it as um, accents or sounds or noises. In fact, they're rather fun, aren't they? I mean, that they've completely infected pop music so, and that makes it very enjoyable. What I'm known for in my, the company I work for is that I don't like bad grammar. I don't like, for example, when people say it looks like he's coming for dinner. I like it to be he looks... It looks as though, instead of like.
0: You're making me very nervous now, Jim. Very nervous.
1: (laughs) I I needn't do because, I believe you me, the company I work for, are well aware of all my quirks and they kind of raise an eyebrow to each other and say, well, Joan's hot on grammar, you know. The fact is, in their minds, this kind of grammar is completely out of date. It's a leftover from my grammar school in the 1950s. So I'm still hanging on to the rules and trying to please my teacher.
0: Now, of course, there's also some talk of ageism. It's a bit daft to raise this subject, given uh, our ages, actually, in this conversation. I mean, one that really re- seems to me remarkable about you is that, first of all, I know you started off working on BBC staff and was a trainee, studio manager, I think, and so on, but essentially you've taken hold of your own destiny, haven't you? You've gone in and banged the door, you've told people, be it the controller of BBC2 or the editor of The Guardian, if you want, to, or anybody else, I've got this idea, I want to do it, And you've not waited to be asked often. You've gone and said, uh, this area needs to be covered. So have you ever really experienced ageism, where somebody has said to you, Joan, great idea, but you really are, come on, you're too old to do it?
1: They wouldn't use that expression, of course. I mean, they, they would simply say we're having a change in pattern or format or whatever. I do think it's important, when I talk to young people about how they want to get on in television... I always say, when you say you want to get on, what is it you actually want to do? And really, when I look back, I think what I wanted to be all my life was a freelance. I didn't want to be chained to a system. I didn't want to be at the mercy of managerial people who pushed me around as though I was fodder for their schemes. So I have moved many places and worked in many institutions. But basically, what I do is I'm a freelance. And I'm still a freelance because freelancers never retire.
0: And so your advice to ageing hacks is come up with good ideas, go to people, make decisions, and ask them, I want to do this, yeah?
1: Yes, or do it and see if anybody's interested. I mean, there was a time when I started writing short stories, and I wrote the short story before I had a commission to do it. And I knew various people, and I sent them, and they sent them back. I had an agent who wasn't terribly keen, because they weren't very good, but she managed to place some of them in women's magazines. And I thought, is wasn't quite my pitch, really. I got to know Alan Corran very well because I appeared on the news quiz, which he chaired. So I got to know him. He became editor of Punch magazine, now defunct, sadly. Um, and I sent him short stories, and he liked them. So very soon he said... And have you another story? I'd like to publish another story. And that kick-started the whole business of my writing short stories and indeed fiction.
0: Joan, I wanted another time to talk, if I may, to you about religious broadcasting because we met on Heart and the Matter again. (laughs) Probably the best television experience I had, the thrill of, of asking questions and so on. But I want to pick up one thing about that, which is, and I think I read it in your book Stop the Clocks, one of your volumes of autobiography, which you wrote, I think, about six, seven years ago. And the question is this, you talked on free will, and you've heard people demonstrate to you in many ways, you said people often brighter than you, that perhaps free will doesn't exist. But you said, and I want to paraphrase you here, that in order to be moral, or if we think we are moral people, we must act as if we have free will. Is that still your view?
1: Yes, I chaired the Brains Trust for a while and this ca- question came up quite a lot and the, the people who were on the, the panels of the Brains Trust were kind of philo- philosophers and, and professors and so on. So I, it, they were worth listening to if that shows that, in fact, I'm an intellectual snob, but that's, so be it. And this question of free will, how can we be responsible for our actions? Are we governed only by our background, our genes and our upbringing? came up quite a lot and i do remember the the a debate just going on without my as chair intervening because it was so interesting and it seemed to me the consensus eventually was whether or not we have free will we have to live as though we do Otherwise, we can't be responsible. Otherwise, we can say, not me, Gov, sorry, I'm out of control. I'm being manipulated by my genes or my inheritance and so on. And um, I can see that that is so. And I feel that in my life, that you have to behave as though you have total free will and you can make a choice to do this
0: or the other. And do you have to behave as if you ultimately become answerable to some supreme being?
1: No, of course not. I don't believe in supreme beings. I'm a humanist. In fact, I'm a co-chair of the humanists in parliament. I feel answerable to my fellow man, woman, humanity, and my own conscience. I think it's quite interesting that when you are bringing children up, children very quickly grab onto this idea of what's right and wrong. They say things like, oh, it's not fair, by which they mean they've lost out in some situation. But they know that there's a an appeal of some kind called, is it fair or is it not fair, that holds weight with grown-ups and that that is already in a child's vocabulary and a child's mind. So where is it coming from? I've no idea, but there is an impulse. I'm sure even prehistoric man roaming the savannah and chasing food, you had to act in the interest of the group. Otherwise, I'm sure... One of the group would point out that you were getting them into trouble or letting the lion into the camp or, you know, doing something that put the group at risk. And I think that it's part of humanity. I'm no Darwinian. I have no idea whether it's associated with genetics or whatever. But there is something inherent in most people that there is an instinct to know what is right or wrong. You find it in prisons, actually, because you get prisoners. Of course, they're all... innocent but they know that the appeal to it's not fair or i was robbed or an injustice has taken place has enormous weight with the people outside with the people inside too of course so this concept it takes hold of them to their benefit and to society's benefit and it's only people who simply ride straight against it someone like hitler would decide of course that such and such would be good for the uh, german race and they would all do it and they have to work very hard to push forward an idea that is intrinsically unacceptable to people. I've always wondered about the women who worked in concentration camps as, as guardians, you know. What did they think about they were doing? What did they seriously say to their consciences when they put their head on the pillow at night and say, oh, tomorrow's another day's work? What was the inner feeling that they had in responding to the Hitlerian idea. I've no idea. But it's not a universal impulse to behave cruelly.
0: Joan, I wish we could uh, continue. And I I struck me in this conversation is that you're still exploring. You still want to find out. You're totally engaged in the present. So if the controller of Radio 4 is listening to this, I don't suppose he is, but if he is and he said, Joan... Have you got any ideas for programmes? Would you uh, come to my office? Would you accept his invitation?
1: Yes, and we can go and interview all the women who worked in the concentration camps as tools of Nazism and ask them how they live with their consciences. That would be really interesting. They'd be about my age, of course.
0: That would be extremely interesting. Joan Bakewell, Dame Joan Bakewell, President of Birkbeck College, up here in the... Gosh, the number of things you do we haven't mentioned. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Thank you very much, Roger. And that's it for this week. Uh, There's been a bit of a backlash at the suggestion we should have plinky-plonky music. Uh, We're going to sit on that fence a little while longer. Remember, do get in touch on Twitter by using at Beeb Roger, or you can send an email to roger at rogerboltonsbeebwatch.com. And just so you know, this podcast was presented by me, Roger Bolton, and produced by Kate Dixon. It was a good egg production. Until next time, goodbye.